Going on in the book of Acts, and this morning we'll look at Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Acts 10, verses 1 through 16. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, what was known as the Italian cohorts. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to all the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter, He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unclean. Or excuse me, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up once to heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, once again, we thank you for your authoritative, inspired word. We ask that your Holy Spirit will help us to understand the great truths that are contained in this passage. This is a monumental transition taking place in the history of the church that we're looking at and help us to see this change and help us to see the implications that it holds for us today some 2,000 years later. May it be more than history to us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'd like to begin this morning by taking you back to a previous presidential election, uh, the 2000 presidential election. During that election, George W. Bush was chided because he gave a speech at Bob Jones University where they had a so-called interracial ban on dating. Now, this ban was finally lifted, but only after the public outcry of the president's or now president, speaking there. Now, as a side note, before I go on, let me just go on the record as saying, I really don't think that there is technically any such thing as racism. See, I'm one of those strange Christians who believes the Bible. And Acts 17.26 is very clear that God created from one man all the nations of the earth. So we are all descendants of Adam and Eve. Therefore, there is only one race, the human race, the race of Adam, the fallen race. Now, evolutionists 
may say that there are different races because different races evolve in different parts of the world. But as a Christian, I don't believe that at all. I believe there is one race, the human race, and we are all related. So as I talk about racism, don't have the impression in your mind that I think there are different races. There are not different races. Technically, there is one race. So racism in this message is just shorthand for people with different skin tones or different eye shapes or different languages or different customs. But there's only one race. Now, here's the question we should ask. How could a Christian university enact such an abhorrent policy? And as Christians, when we sin, when we get it wrong, we have to own up to that. We have to say we were wrong, uh, we sinned, please forgive us. That's what the Christian life is all about. And sometimes we have to do that. We have to own up to those things. But how could a Christian university come up with such a policy? Um, I believe there's basically two answers. Let me give you a theological answer and then an answer from anthropology. Uh, the theological answer is a misunderstanding of a lot of the Old Testament scriptures. Let me give you one example from Ezra. And you can turn there if you like. Ezra shortly before Psalms. Ezra 9. Let me begin at verse 10. And now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the land, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever." So there you have it. Don't allow your children to intermarry with the children of other nations. Why is that? Because we despise that race over there. Is that what God was saying? Was that His concern? That was not God's concern at all. God's concern is that their uncleanness, their abominations would come into the people of God and corrupt the people of God. The issue was not one of quote-unquote race. It was an issue of religion. God is not against interracial dating or marriage. He's against interreligious dating and marriage. That's the point that was misunderstood. And again, sometimes we have to be honest and say they missed the point. But I think there's also another reason um, why this policy entered in. And that's because of anthropology. Basically, we are sinners. We are, to state it bluntly, totally depraved. And part of that sinful nature, part of that depravity, will manifest itself in pride. And many theologians have said, if you go right to the root of any sin, you will find pride. And it is very easy for us to feel superior to others. Because we are, after all, Americans. 
or because we are, after all, more educated, or we are, after all, fill in the blank. But it's part of human nature. And you want to know the dirty little secret? We all do it. We all do it. We all have pride. And what is pride, basically? Pride is thinking that you're better than another person. You put another person down. You're better, again, because you're richer, smarter, better looking, more athletic, whatever. And that's just part of human nature. So you can read the Bible and you can read that with a sinful heart and it's easy to come up with all kinds of processes, policies that shouldn't be there. Now, the racism, if I can use that term, that existed in the first century between the Jews and the Gentiles was as intense or more intense than anything we've experienced. John Stott writes, It is difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other. Not that the Old Testament itself continents such a divide. On the contrary, alongside its oracles against the hostile nations, it affirmed that God had a purpose for them. By choosing and blessing one family, he intended to bless all the families of the earth. So the psalmist and the prophets foretold the day when God's Messiah would inherit the nations. The Lord's servant would be their light. All nations would flow to the Lord's house and God would pour out His Spirit on all humankind. The tragedy was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism, became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions which kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew, for example, would ever enter the house of a Gentile, even a God-fearer, or invite such into his home. On the contrary, all familiar intercourse with Gentiles was forbidden, and no pious Jew would, of course, have sat down at the table with a Gentile. So, Jews are way over here. Gentiles, way over here. They despise one another. They don't have anything to do with one another. They don't come together in one another's homes. They would never sit down at a meal together. They have names for one another. The Jews would even pray Pray to God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile. They were so proud of being Jewish. But God wants to change all of that. And He wants to bring the Jews who are way over there and the Gentiles who are way over there. He wants them to come together and Jesus Christ to be one. And you need to know that that is not going to be easy. For that to happen, God is going to have to supernaturally intervene. He's going to have to bring about visions, trances, and even a message from heaven itself so that His people would understand that in the body of Christ, there is only one race, one nation. Everybody is coming together. And right up front, let me stress that unity in the body of Christ is very essential. It's very important. What was one of Jesus' final prayers for His disciples? That's right, Norbert. He prayed that they would be one. John 17.20 I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in them, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That, that's his prayer, not just for disciples, but for all Christians who will believe. His prayer is that they would be one and that they would enjoy the oneness that the Trinity enjoys. The oneness that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the oneness that God wants His people to exist. And in Ephesians 4.3, Paul exhorts the Christians to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain the unity that you have. Another translation says, strive to maintain this unity because it's very important. Because there's just one people. Just recently, Caleb asked me a question in the car. And he said, Dad, I have a question for you. And he said, you probably don't know the answer. Now, I don't know why he began like that. (laughs) He said, but when we get to heaven, and you need to know that I remind my kids that heaven is not just a serial world, but it's physical. We're going to have glorified bodies. There's a resurrection. There's a new heaven and a new earth. So it's going to be much more physical than we often think. But his question was, um, when we get to heaven, will there be different nations? Will there still be distinct nations like China and Canada and the United States? And I don't know why he came up with that, that question. But I said, that's a good question. And I said, it actually ties into Sunday's message. And I said, by the way, I do have an answer. <laughs> Your dad does know a few things. And the Bible is clear that in Jesus Christ, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. One nation in Jesus Christ for all eternity. God is bringing us all together so that finally in Jesus Christ, one nation that will go on for eternity and we will dwell together. So, unity is very important. Jesus died so that He could reconcile all things in heaven and on earth. That's what Christianity is all about. And another way of describing evangelism is the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling people to God and reconciling people to one another. Bringing everybody together so that we are one in Jesus Christ. So, how is that going to come about? That's what our passage is about as we look at the first official Gentile convert who will come into the newly formed Jewish Christian church. Verse 1, we're told, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Um, Cohort uh, consisted of some 600 men, so... This was basically a captain, over 600 men in this army, and he was in Caesarea. And we're told in verse 2 that he was a devout man who feared God with all his households. And his religion manifested itself in giving alms generously to all the people, and he prayed continually to God. Uh, Technically, he is a person that we call a God-fearer. Uh, most likely a convert to Judaism. And he followed all the Jewish practices and all the Jewish laws except for one, 
circumcision. Some rites are a little too painful. But other than that, um, he was very sincere, uh, excuse me, very sincere in the understanding of God that he had at the time. And of course, like many Jews, um, his understanding was limited to the Old Testament. He had not heard about Jesus Christ yet. Story continues on. About the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. That, that is a beautiful picture. Sproul writes, Jews who had access to the inner courts of the temple brought in their sacrifices and smoke from the burnt offering as well as incense from the altar of incense, which is the altar of prayer, rose up to heaven and was a pleasing aroma in God's nostrils. Uh, this angel is saying to Cornelius, even though you are not a Jew, your prayers and sacrifices have been sweet to God and God is recognizing you. So it's a beautiful picture. He's sincerely praying to God. He's sincerely uh, giving alms generously to the poor because he wants to do the right thing. He wants to please God. And this angel is telling him, you know what? Everything you have done has not gone unnoticed. God has noticed it's risen all the way to heaven and He is pleased with you. Verse 5, And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called his two servants and a devout soldier from among them who had attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Cornelius has no idea that his whole world is about to change. But God has noticed he's just following orders and waiting to see, uh, with great anticipation, I'm imagining, waiting to see what is going to happen next. After all, it's not every day that an angel comes to you and gives you a message from God. Um, so he is excited, to say the least. Turn the clock ahead 21 hours, and the story resumes with Peter. Verse 9, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. So how this is different than a vision, don't ask me, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but he's in some kind of trance so that he sees things. And what does he see? He saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending. And this was probably a large sheet. If you're imagining a bed sheet that you put on, it was probably ten times that size. Uh, the Greek word here is also used for the sails of a ship. So this is a huge sheet that's coming down from heaven. And on this sheet... We have all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. So probably a mixture of clean and unclean animals of, of all kinds just 
on this sheet all, all together um, like a jungle falling from heaven. And there came a voice to him, no doubt from heaven, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now you need to realize this is not a suggestion coming from heaven. These are imperatives of commands. We talked about this in our uh, men's study. Yes, these are imperatives. That's very important. God is commanding Peter. Peter, kill these animals and eat these animals. It's, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. But Peter, being an Orthodox Jew, as you can imagine, is absolutely repulsed. This would be like asking Kelly, Kelsey Yo to eat a Snickers bar. She would be absolutely repulsed. No, Lord! <laughs> Not sugar! <laughs> um, in all seriousness, he, he really was repulsed. He had never in his entire life eaten anything. Bacon? We, we might be attracted to that. But not Peter. Absolutely not. He was repulsed. So what's his response? By no means, Lord. Peter puts two words together in the same sentence that should never go together. No, Lord. Exactly. Exactly. No, Lord. And a voice came to him again a second time. Now, let's pause here for a moment. This, this is illustrating something very serious. This is not an easy transition for Peter to see that people are becoming clean. This, this is not easy. God has to speak to him from heaven to help him understand that things are changing. What does God say? What God has made clean, do not call uncommon. Now, now, we need to consider something here. How do we explain this apparently whimsical, um, capricious change with God? After all, for thousands of years, God has said, that animal, that animal, that animal over there, unclean, off limits, don't touch. And now all of a, God, all of a sudden, God says, Peter, that animal over there and that animal over there that I've said for thousands of years that are unclean, don't touch. Don't put it in your mouth. I want you to kill them now. And I want you to eat and I want you to enjoy. Now, how do we explain this sudden shift in redemptive history? Well, I think, first of all, to understand that we are dealing with redemptive history. Um, it might be helpful to make this distinction. There is a distinction between moral laws and ceremonial laws. I don't want to make too sharp of a distinction, but this can be helpful. Uh, the moral laws of God, like thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, bear false witness against your neighbors, those are based on the character of God. And since God's character doesn't change, His moral law cannot change, will not change. They remain constant because they're based on the character of God. Now, the ceremonial laws are a little different. They are temporary because they served a purpose in redemptive history for a time. So, for example, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, 
worshiping at the temple and not cleaning or not excuse me not eating unclean foods were temporary. We don't have to worry about those ceremonial laws now. Now why were some foods considered unclean? First of all, realize that the unclean foods represented unclean people. That's really what God was symbolizing. And Israel was to be distinct from the other nations in part because salvation was going to be found in their nation alone. There wasn't salvation in any other nation. And why is that? Because the Messiah was going to come out of Israel. So if you wanted to find salvation, forgiveness of sins, you had to come into the Jewish nation because the Messiah was going to come to the Jewish nation. So it was important for you to convert to Judaism so that you could be a part of that religion. But now that Jesus Christ has come, we don't have to go to a Jewish nation. We go to Jesus Christ. And in Him is the fulfillment of everything in the ceremonial law. So we don't need to bring a sacrifice. That's why you didn't bring a goat or a bull or pigeons this morning and offer them. You don't need them. We have Jesus Christ. It wasn't necessary for us this morning to travel to the Middle East and worship at the temple. Because we worship in spirit and truth in Jesus Christ. You don't have to go to a priest to have access to God because now we have the priesthood of all believers. You have direct access to God. You are, in one sense, the priest who goes into the Holy of Holies into God's very presence. And now, God is declaring all the nations clean because He's bringing them all together in Jesus Christ. So there's one nation in Christ, one holy nation. You might want to think of it as the church. So the ceremonial law was good for a time. It had its place. But now that Christ has come, it's no longer necessary. It's like the scaffolding on a building. If you go downtown Chicago and you see them erecting some huge building and you see all the scaffolding and that's necessary so that they can build the building. But but what happens when the building's complete? You tear down the scaffolding. You, you don't need it anymore. The ceremonial laws and systems like the scaffold, putting everything into place for Jesus Christ and His kingdom in the church. And now that that is all in place, we no longer need the scaffolding. We can take it down and we can get rid of it because we have the building. We have the kingdom. We're a part of the church. We're a part of the one people of God. But that was a lesson that would not come easy to the Jews. It would take some time for them to understand that. And we'll see that as we continue on in the book of Acts. This is going to raise all kinds of questions for the Jews. (laughs) Well, what should they be required to do? What should they not be required to do? And And we'll see that even for Peter it was difficult. Later in Galatians, Paul confronts Peter to his face because while he used to eat with Gentiles, then some other Jews came and and said, that's not kosher in more ways than one. So Peter withdrew and many other 
Jews withdrew with them and they didn't participate with the Gentiles. They didn't eat with them anymore. And you know what Paul says? You're undermining the Gospel. The Gospel. Because the Gospel is all about Jews and Gentiles coming together. And when we have divisions in the body of Christ, that's serious. That's a Gospel issue. Because again, unity in the body of Christ is essential. From one perspective, Jesus died not only so we could be forgiven, not only so we could go to heaven. Jesus Christ died so that we would all be one. That's serious. So what should we, what should we take away from this? First of all, I think a good place to begin is to admit that we have contempt and we have prejudicial tendencies. This, this is the human heart. The English pastor Alexander White says that we are a lot like Peter. For how we also bundle up whole nations of men and throw them into the same unclean sheet. Whole churches that we know nothing about, but their bad names that we have given them are in our sheet of excommunication also. All the other denominations of Christians in our land are common and unclean to us. Every party outside our own party in the political state also. We have no language contemptuous enough wherewith to describe their wicked ways and their self-seeking schemes. They are four-footed beasts and creeping things. Indeed, there are very few men alive, and especially those who live near us, who are not sometimes in the sheet of our scorn. Unless it is one here or one there of our own family or school or party. And they also come under our own scorn and our contempt the moment they have a mind of their own and interest of their own and affections and ambitions of their own. I read that and I went, out. That's true. If we're really honest, don't we look down on other people? down in other churches because they have this kind of ministry. Not just respectfully disagreeing, but looking down on them. I mean, looking down on them and and thinking, we're up here. We don't do ministry like that. We do ministry like this. We're not careful. Not really pride. Showing contempt for our brothers and sisters for whom Christ died, and for whom Christ specifically prayed that we would be one with. Again, we we have to watch our hearts. This is is just human nature. As a follow-up to that, let me ask, do you do your part to bring about unity in the body of Christ? It's not just enough to say, yes, I do that. They do that. We do that collectively. Then we have to say, okay, Lord, forgive us and, and help us to be intentional about bringing people together. Con- conflict is easy. Not getting along with other people is easy. Uh, some people, it seems like conflict follows them everywhere. You know, like the man, every restaurant he goes to, it seems like there's bad waiters. I mean, he's just... 
It's uncanny. Every single restaurant he goes to, bad waiters. It's like, What's going on here? I don't understand it. Every restaurant I visit. Wonder why that is. <laughs> why do we have so many problems? Well, Pastor Wayne, you don't know those people. <laughs> you don't know how they are. I, I, was, I was telling the, the men at the men's study, I said, you guys would be amazed at how godly I am when I'm sitting at my desk in my office reading the Bible. When I'm all by myself, you'd be absolutely amazed at how godly I am. But what happens as soon as other people come into the picture? You know what happens, right? All of a sudden, you know, clash, conflict, disunity. Guys, am I the only one who's experienced that? (laughs) No, see? So what do we need to do? We need to be aggressive. We really do. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Why are they called sons of God? Because they're like God. Because they're like their Father, who is the ultimate peacemaker in Jesus Christ. So, when we are peacemakers, we are like our Father. We are truly sons of God in that sense. But this isn't easy. It's not easy to be a peacekeeper. Or, excuse me, to be a peacemaker. To be a peacekeeper, sometimes you just let things go, you keep the peace. To be a peacemaker, that means you get involved in conflict. To be a peacemaker, you know there's strife and you walk into it. Which means it takes great guts to be a peacemaker. Because you're walking into conflict. Even if you're just dialing a number Well, we don't dial anymore, do we? (laughs) Even if you're calling a number and you know there's conflict, you're entering into that. But you're saying, you know what? There needs to be peace here. This is what God wants. So you make that difficult phone call. Or you send that difficult email and you say, hey, let's sit down and get together. There seems to be some misunderstanding here or whatever. You take the initiative. And I want to ask you, do you take the initiative? Do you take the initiative? Because you understand that unity is so important. Peace is so important. And let me say, it's a tremendous gift. Some people are very good at it. Some, some people are like Barnabas. Remember Barnabas? We talked about him. He's, he's the one that brought uh, Paul after his conversion to the brothers. Some people are really good at it. But we're all called to do it. We're all called to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're all called to bring everybody together. And this isn't always easy, but this is our calling. Think about it. Isn't it the heart of God to bring people together? Again, Jesus Christ died not just for the forgiveness of our sins, but so we can be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. The very heart of God is to bring people together. The very heart of Satan is to bring people apart. Satan loves to split churches, to split marriages, to split families, to split friends. I think just to split just about anything. Mm -hmm. To split it up. 
So that's what we're fighting. We have to have the heart of God. And there's a battle. There's a battle in bringing people together. It's not easy, but we have to fight it. Jesus could lay down His life to bring about unity. We could lay down our lives. Shortly after the Civil War, Robert E. Lee went to church, St. Paul's Episcopal Church, and after the sermon, uh, something very audacious happened. Tall, well-dressed, very black man walked to the front of the church and knelt down to receive communion. And at this time, blacks and whites were separated in the churches. They certainly did not partake of communion together. It was not time for the blacks to come forward. But this man had the audacity to come forth. And one man who was there describes the scene and says there was a hushed silence. The pastor was embarrassed. Nobody knew what was going to happen next. Until Robert E. Lee got up from his pew, walked to the front of the church, came down, and knelt down also next to the black man to receive communion. And then the whole church gathered together as one. Not blacks over here, whites over here. Church came together as one. One man had courage, integrity to come forth and it transformed the whole church. That's what God's calling us to do. To be those men and women of courage. To come forth and unite people because we have the heart of God and we want to carry out the will of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You and praise You for the great diversity in the body of Christ. It's beautiful. But Father, at the same time, we have to be honest and say that it's also difficult because we're different than one another. So we have trouble understanding each other. and There's miscommunication and misunderstanding. But Father, we need to come together in Jesus Christ as You're calling us. And Father, we thank You that there's one church. We confess it in our creeds. One holy, universal, and apostolic church. There's one church. Not a Baptist church. Presbyterian church. Methodist church. One church in Jesus Christ. Same question Caleb also had. There will not be denominations in heaven. There will be one Christian church. So Father, help us to maintain that unity and to enjoy it. And when we experience it, Father, we thank You for it. We don't take it for granted. It's a tremendous blessing that You have given us. So thank You for the unity that we do enjoy. In Jesus' name, Amen.